Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. This is episode number 251. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Let's open with a word of prayer. Avino Makino, our Father, our King, Lord, we ask that you would be with us as we study your words tonight. We realize that we can't just automatically assume that uh, the truths that you have given to us are going to open up to us automatically uh, without us putting in the effort. Um, you, the, there's uh, good uh, instructions over and over and again uh, found in your words that um, uh, invite us and um, uh, implore us to, to press in, uh, to discover truth, to uh, equip ourselves, to um, be in fellowship with you using your word to allow the spirit to guide us and to teach us and to uh, uh, have this responsibility of sharing what we learn uh, with other people. So we bless you and thank you for this opportunity, and we look forward to the insights that we're going to be gaining tonight as we study your words. Continue to bless us and to protect us and to provide for us, and to give us a hope beyond hope um, in this very dark world. And we'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory. Bashem Yeshua. Amen. Thank you, everyone, for joining me during these live internet studies. It's really supposed to be an hour and a half long. Lately, I've been pushing it to about almost two hours. So I apologize for those of you who are looking for shorter topics. The entire show is broken up into two topics. The first topic is called Eschatology, a Biblical Study of End Time Events, where we're kind of working our way topic by topic, like you can see on your screen right now, working our way topic by topic towards a study on the book of Revelation. And right now we're in this very, we just started this very, can be somewhat exciting or controversial or uh, interesting topic known as rapture views or, or rapture itself. Topic 10, rapture views and overview, talking about the topic of rapture, when it, what is it, when is it, why is it, et cetera, et cetera. I think most of you already know there's about four main views. So we'll, we'll look through real quick through um, what is in store for this particular topic in a moment. After the eschatology study, the last 30 minutes of my uh, hour and a half long show is given over to a topic entitled A Trinitarian Response to Biblical Unitarianism. And it is an apologetic work where we look at verses supplied by Biblical Unitarian, who answers the question about, is God Trinity? They answer the question in the negative, he is not Trinity, in their view. And we're taking the Trinitarian position as if this were a debate. We're taking the positive of the affirmative position, yes, God is Trinity. And we're looking through different passages. And right now, we're now, right now we just started last week into Isaiah the very famous passage that we read about during Christmas time, Isaiah 9, 6, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, etc., etc. We know the one with all the titles. Okay, so if those topics are both of interest to you, well then, uh, I encourage you to stay through the entire show, which during for these YouTube clips, you can only see uh, each uh, playlist is dedicated to each topic, so you'd have to just basically subscribe to my YouTube channel to see the entire show or you can catch the YouTube, the uh, podcast version, which is the complete audio show, which is uploaded probably about 24 hours after I record the entire show. Okay, everybody ready? Here we go. So let's jump into eschatology, biblical study of end time events. Just real quick, what we're going to be looking at by way of topics is 
There are four basic Rapture views. This is just one slide that I've been using, but you can see all four views here. Within the time period known by many as the seven-year tribulation, even though I personally don't subscribe to that label seven-year tribulation, but within that time frame, there are places that have been assumed to be when the rapture is going to take place. And all of them really are based on Scripture, so I'm not going to be too harsh on one versus the other, but I will tell you which one I hold to. So in the order that you see them on this chart, moving from top to bottom, where the little yellow circle is placed, we have rapture known as pre-trib. What this does is it places the rapture in front of or prior or pre to the seven-year tribulation. And then the rest of the seven-year time period is labeled in this view, either wrath of God or tribulation. The two terms are somewhat synonymous in this view. Next one moving down on this list is mid-trib or mid-tribulation. Rapture shows up roughly right in the midpoint of the seven years, which then means that the first half of the seven years is not wrath of God, like you can see on the screen, rather it's some form of tribulation, at least, it, well, it doesn't say it here, but that's, I believe, what they're talking about. And then the last half is wrath of God. And then the, moving down the list, the third one on the list is, <coughs> excuse me, is pre-wrath. And this one actually puts rapture not at the beginning and not in the middle, but it's closer to the far right side of the seven-year tribulation. So it's after the midpoint, but not at the far end. So it's somewhere in the middle there. And it has a pink arrow pointing to wrath of Satan on the left side of the rapture. And the gray arrow or black arrow is on the right side with wrath of God. So there's a distinction in this particular perspective. And then the last one on this chart is post-trib for the full seven years. We've got what is probably listed as either tribulation or wrath of God, one of the two. At least this arrow just shows the wrath of God from the midpoint. And then raptures on the farthest right. And then, of course, on the farthest right of every view, which is essentially agreed upon by all four views, is the millennium. And that's the thousand-year time period when Jesus will rule and reign bodily from planet Earth, and the saints will be ruling with him. So this is just the this is one look at the four views. We'll come back around to more charts that show different perspectives. But if we want to zoom in on each of those four, and this is the order that I'm going to be addressing them in this study. Pre-trib is, again, um, the full seven years is uh, recognized as the tribulation slash wrath of God. And the idea is that there are enough verses in the Bible that teach that that Christians will not experience the wrath of God, and therefore, if by definition the tribulation and the wrath of God are the same thing, and since we're promised as Christians to not go through it, then what we're expecting is that Jesus is going to rapture us, the church, out of harm's way or out of danger pre-prior to anything happening that would be determined or be defined as wrath. So what we're going to see is it becomes necessary to define some of the key terms in this chart. What truly is tribulation? What truly is wrath? And when do when does the Bible indicate that they begin in relationship to where we are? And we'll also notice that in this uh, discussion, there's this 
um, event extremely important on the far right. We can see it on this chart now that we, we you couldn't see on this one. But in this chart, we can begin to see that opposite of the rapture on the far left, where the black and the white arrows are touching each other, kissing the, the pointing up and the pointing down. On the far right of the chart, we have a black arrow, a single black arrow pointing down called second coming. So it becomes necessary in these discussions to define the terms rapture and second coming. Are they the same event? Are they two events separated by a time frame of either seven years, three and a half years, or even shorter, one and a half years, or something to that effect? So looking at these charts, keep your eyes open for these particular markers. Also, it's important to notice that the three and a half years and the three and a half years is the same for all of the charts. We've got some kind of foundational agreement between all of the different, the four different views. We also have a bit of a marker, an extremely significant marker in the middle with the midpoint where the abomination, uh, the abomination of desolation, the, 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 the revealing of Antichrist takes place. And that's also somewhat agreed upon by just about every, every view here. So here's a closer look, a zoomed-in view of the mid-trib. And again, you can see that the, uh, the, the black and white arrows touching each other, kissing each other, are right at the midpoint. That represents rapture at the midpoint. And in the far right, you can see second coming. This view, just like the previous view, separates uh, rapture from second coming, sees them as two distinct events, and yet they're connected by the area in the middle known as God's wrath. So they function as bookends or phases or aspects or stages of it looks like perhaps one event, right? That's I mean just by visual from these limited uh, graphics. Here's a here's a third one, the post-trib rapture, and once again the uh, seven-year slices in view. And but this this is a, a very different looking rapture because in essence the rapture and the second coming are essentially on top of each other the same event although we know from reading scripture that the rapture and the second coming are at least have some distinct aspects to them but what we're saying is that we might not know exactly how far how long the duration is between the two perhaps they're spoken of in such a way as to be synonymous with one another although there definitely is a movement that goes up and then a movement that comes back down but how long that duration is between those two movements is debatable according to the different views that we're working from today or working on on this uh, section so Seven years are still in view, but God's wrath is the entire seven years. Midpoint uh, is still there. Tribulation is still there. And yet, rapture and second coming are at the far end of the seven years. And then, uh, let me just jump over and show you the... Oops, where did I put it? There we go. The pre-wrath view, which is the view that I'm going to tell you right up front that I espouse to, is the same seven years, but now there's some very important label differences. The beginning of sorrows is essentially the first half of the seven years. We've got the midpoint. Then we've got the, the section known as the Great Tribulation happening or uh, taking place after the midpoint. And then the second half of the second half, right? The second half of the seven years, i.e. The, the second three and a half years, is divided into two sections, the Great Tribulation and then the Day of the Lord. So uh, this day of the Lord is synonymous with the with God's wrath, and so if you look where the rapture takes place on this chart, it is the upward pointing white arrow and the downward pointing black arrow. Of course, that's the church going up and the 
uh, Yeshua coming, the Lord coming down to meet us. So that's the pre-wrath rapture right there. This chart is not assuming that it takes place neatly within a half of the three and a half years. It's just an approximation. All of every every view really says that no one knows the day of the hour. Although, in my opinion, the the post-trib wrath runs into some chronological issues by placing theirs right at the end. They're almost saying that we know when Jesus is coming back. He's coming back at the end of the seven years, and therefore, I, I wonder how they, what they do with the verse where Jesus says that no one knows the day or the hour, if we can at least know the day based on the seven years. In other words, you tell me when the midpoint starts, and I'll tell you when the Battle of Armageddon, or, or when the end of the seven years is. I mean, that's that's based on Daniel's timing. There's no way to get around that. Nevertheless, we'll see what the pre, what the post-tribbers have to do about that, what they have to say about that when the time comes. But on this chart, the far right is second coming. So pre-wrath separates the two sections, just like the um, the other, like two of the other three do. Uh, you know, everyone other than the post-trib, and so they separate them by a, a, a space of God's wrath. So all of the views have some understanding of there is some movement going up and some movement coming down and we're really differing on when the movement going up takes place but it looks it looks like everyone agrees on when the downward movement takes place at the second coming which is at the far farthest right of the chart meaning at the end of the seven years or something to that effect remember there's another chart let's see if i have it um either one of these charts will work for me Without getting too complicated, just remember that we're working our way towards this idea that there's a larger, there's some large, there's some more details. That if you look at this chart, for instance, down at the bottom, we've got Daniel's seventh week of seven years. But then, and this is the chart supplied by Brother Aaron Eggman, um, the gentleman who uh, is letting me use many of his resources. He wrote the book, "The Saints Go Up and the Wrath Comes Down," and so we're going to look at a lot of his charts. He shows accurately that. At the end of the seven years, there's an extra 30 days per Daniel chapter 8, and then there's another 45 days per Daniel chapter 12. I'm sorry, the 30 days is Daniel 8 and after chapter 12, and the 45 days is also Daniel chapter 12. So what this gives us are details that when we match them up with the book of Revelation, we find that there are events that must take place uh, at and I'm going to name off three uh, time frames. There's the end of the 70th week, which is the end of the seven years. We have that ending marker. Then, 30 days later, we have another event that takes place per the book of Revelation. And then 40, uh, 45 days later, so 30 plus 45 is 75, but 45 days later, we have a, the another event that takes place. And if you carefully were looking at the post-trib rapture, According to post-trib, Jesus returns near either the end of the 70th week or the end of the 30 days or the end of the 45 days or somewhere in those time frames. And I don't know how they get around that because it, either way, if you say he he's coming back at the end of the seven years, the end of the 30 days or the end of the 45 days, either way, you know the day and the hour. Well, you might not know the hour, but you at least know the day because Daniel gave us these markers of 1260 days for the end of the 70th week, 1290 days for the end of the 30 days, and then 1335 days for the end of the 45. So either way, 
not only did the angel know the the exact day of these markers, he uh, he committed a spoiler and told Daniel, right, I'm being kind of funny, but the point I'm trying to bring up is that Yeshua said no one knows the day or the hour, which, stop and think about it, day, hour, well, unless we're going to say, well, we don't know, maybe he could come back the day before the end of the seventh week, or the day after, or a few days after, or the 30 days. So, in other words, we're not saying he comes back at right on the end of the seven years. We don't. We're, then we can say we don't know the day, but maybe that's how they get around that. We'll see when the time comes. Okay, so that's kind of the overview of some of the charts that we're going to be looking at. Last week, we finished looking at gotquestions.org, two resources. They talked about a definition of the rapture, and then they introduced one of the perspectives on the rapture, which is the pre-trib view, which is the most popular view in Christian circles today. Tonight, we're going to start looking at more resources. We'll start with Pastor John Piper. He asks, he answers the question from his perspective, what is the rapture? I'll just tell you right now, he is a post-tribber according to the uh, uh blog, or according to the answer that we're going to read here in a moment from his website, post-trib. So he puts the tribulation, I'm sorry, he puts the rapture at the far end of the seven years. Without saying that he knows the day or the hour, he is saying that if Jesus comes back around Armageddon, and this again, let me, I'm, I'm sorry, I jumped a little too fast. If you look at this chart, according to most chronologers, according to most eschatologists, myself included, the Battle of Armageddon takes place not at the end of the seven years, but at the end of the 30 days. And thus, if Jesus comes back at the Battle of Armageddon, which he does, where his feet touch down on Mount of Olives, right? He's riding a white horse. That's why there's a horse pictured in this uh, graphic here, this chart. If that's when Jesus comes back for the second coming, but if, according to post-trib theology timing, the rapture and the sec and the second coming are the same event. Well, then they are saying that they can know that the that Jesus' return is seven years plus thirty days. In other words, it's at the end of the twelve hundred ninety days, starting our count from the midpoint of the week. Thus, again, I don't know how they get away with saying that the day is unknown if Daniel told us the day when our battle of Armageddon is supposed to take place, unless. Maybe these are really just general outlines, right? The 30 days of these events. Maybe maybe the Battle of Armageddon doesn't place, take place exactly on the 30-day mark to the, to the day. Maybe the angel was just saying there's this time frame, but then the actual Battle of Armageddon might take place a day or two earlier, a week earlier, a day or two afterwards, a week afterwards. Maybe there's some fudge room there. Okay, that, that that could fit. So anyway, Pastor John is going to, Pastor Piper is going to push for his understanding of being a post-trib rapture. After that, we're going to turn to Brother Aaron Eggman's uh, 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 pre-wrath uh, chart, pre-wrath resource at prewrathresources.wordpress.com, and we'll begin to look at some of his resources with a view, working our way towards a view of looking at first the pre-trib rapture more carefully. That's the more popular view, so it deserves a lot of attention in this study. I'm not going to tell you that um, it is completely wrong. We're going to find out eventually that there are truths that are 
carried along by each of the four views that we really need to pay attention to. And in the end, whichever view you decide to go with, you need to at least recognize that each particular view has some very strong points that you probably need to recognize and, and retain when you're doing your little shopping around for which view you want to hold. So, <coughs> excuse me. Pre-trib Raptor view beliefs, we're going to start looking at that through Brother Eggman's uh, uh, website. Then we'll turn to Biola University's Biola Magazine, What is the Rapture and When Will It Happen? by Professor Alan Holtberg. And the reason why I chose this resource is because uh, Professor Holtberg wrote the uh, books on the four views of the rapture that I mentioned last week, which are available any, anywhere that uh, Bible books are sold. And the uh, perspective that he holds, we're going to find out he even though he does a review of all the four views, in this article here that we're looking at, we're going to find out which view he himself holds to. I won't, I won't tell you right away. I'll just wait. I'll wait until the time comes. Next, we'll move to Solo Scriptura, which is actually a resource that is maintained by pre-wrath ministries, such as um, uh, Brother uh, Charles Cooper, um, the late... Uh, uh, Robert Van Campen, Marv Rosenthal, Zion's Hope, and Alan uh, Kirshner, they all contribute to this particular resource here, Solo Scripture or solagroup.org. But what's interesting about their article is they're able to talk about the rapture without even using the phrase pre-wrath. In other words, if someone says, they throw their hands up and says, I don't care which view I don't want to. I don't want to know what man says. I don't want to know pre, post, mid, pre wrath. I don't want. I don't want those terms. I'm going to reject all that. Like a lot of people are kind of dissatisfied with denominational labels, and they say I'm just non-denominational. What if you were to say I'm just non-denominational when it comes to the wrath view, the the um, the the trip trip uh, the tribulate. I'm sorry, the rapture view. I don't want a denominational purpose. I just want to know what the Bible says. Just I'm going to hold a view that says the Bible. So I'm just going to say my view is called the biblical view. How could you describe that? Well, this article is going to do that for you. So we're going to find out after we read the article, which one of the four views does this biblical, I'm using the air quotes with my fingers for those people who can't see me, which view does the Bible actually just teach without trying to put a label onto it? All right, we'll do that in, in time. And then um, after that, we'll begin to turn headlong into topic number 11, making a case for the pre-wrath view, which is the view that I'm holding to. So I put this chart here as a divider between the other uh, topics that we looked at. And then uh, from there, we'll begin to dive directly into uh, pre-wrath uh, resources. Uh, we've got um, Alan Kirshner's website here. We've got more of uh, Brother Aaron Eggman's uh, here and here and here. And then lastly, a few more charts just as we start working our way, winding down uh, from the making the case for the pre-wrath towards looking at topic number, uh, what is it, 10, 11, uh, 12. Is that 12? I'm suddenly drawing, drawing a blank. 10, 11, 12, yeah. Uh, winding down, looking at um, towards reviewing or an, uh, uh, finalizing or summarizing, what does it say there, a final analysis. We'll begin to look at the, the all the four one more time. We've got another resource from gotquestions.org that talks about the strengths and weaknesses of the pre-wrath view. Actually, that's out of order. I want that there. We'll look at that first, and then we'll wind down with some uh, final uh, a final chart. 
Um, and then uh, a rap, a, uh, an article from Pre-Wrath Rapture that summarizes all of the four views and shows some harmony and shows the strengths and weaknesses as our summary version. And then we'll close out with some just some extra charts on the end for visuals. Okay, so that's that's the whole study. How long that's going to take, I can't tell you. But that's what's in store. And so I hope that you're able to stay with us through the entire part, the entire study. Let's jump now into Pastor John Piper's article here and it's quite short uh we could probably get through all of it uh, uh, tonight i mean this is an hour we've got 40 more minutes left in the study or yeah that is right 40 more minutes using the countdown timer so let's jump into this part what is the rapture this is pastor john piper's audio transcript and if uh, what i'm looking at right now is a version of the website which is a, what's called reader mode if you use microsoft edge it allows me to strip away the HTML and show a more uh, reading-friendly version of the website. But if I were to unclick or hit uh, F9 on your keyboard and unclick the immersive reader and show you the original uh, website, the original HTML version of the website, like you can see right now, well then, which is at uh, www.desiringgod.org. That's Pastor John Piper's resource. What you'll notice is that this is an audio file. And so there's, uh, if you click on it, it's 12 minutes long listen. You can listen to him uh, say, you can hear his answer audio-wise. It's from an interview, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So there's the article that we're going to be reading. Okay, so let's go back over to this version, which is the, the transcript. And he provided this answer back in December of 2012, if I remember. And it was, you know, it's around time for what Christians call the Christmas season. So here's what he has to say on the question of what is the rapture. And he's going to answer the timing as well. Here's what Pastor Piper says. Advent is a season for waiting. Of course, we are not waiting, he says, for the birth of Christ any longer. But we are waiting. We are awaiting the second advent of Christ, his return to earth. Right away, I just want to comment that I like the fact that he talks about the uh, coming of Yeshua in both aspects. He says, the we're not waiting for the birth of Christ, but we're awaiting the second advent. And he uses the word advent, meaning the coming of Christ. And what I'm, we're going to find out that when we look at Yeshua coming to earth and interacting with human beings, it is entirely pro uh, proper to refer to his arrival, his coming, his presence here on earth with the Greek word parousia. And this, or some people say parousia, but P-A-R-O-U-S-I-A in the transliterated Greek using English letters, Latin alphabet. But uh, I use, I pronounce it as parousia. So the parousia is the presence, literally translated as not really coming of Christ. Uh, it's the arrival. It's a better way to translate that Greek word, but with the view of presence of whoever is has arrived. The idea, going back to this ancient Greek concept of a ruler or a king or an emperor or a Caesar coming to a town or a city, you know, somewhere other than the throne, other than the, the royal palace where he resides most of the time, he's going to go out and visit his subjects, he's going to come into a town. Of course, all of this is pre-announced with 
pomp and circumstance and all kinds of fanfare, right? I mean, it's the king, it's the emperor, it's the Caesar, it's the ruler of the of the of our place, it's the guy who's keeping us uh, safe and providing for us, et cetera, et cetera. So what would end up happening is the people of the town would go out to meet him right at maybe the edge of the town's border or um, go out to the town square at the very least, the main street, whatever you want to call it. And they would hold a parade and they'd have all these celebrations and joyous festivities and uh, et cetera, et cetera. And they would, in other words, rather than just waiting for him to come into town and then they go meet him, they would anticipate and know that he's coming because he announced it in advance. He told them he was coming and they would go out and meet him first. And then he would meet them at that edge and they would actually accompany him or escort him as it were back into town. And so we can see this in the gospels where Yeshua is coming in right uh, the, the, the uh, what we call the passion week where he's riding into Jerusalem on a donkey and he is met by the people the throngs the crowds of people putting palm branches on we call this palm sunday putting the palm branches on the ground and they're welcoming this king by this time he's he's publicly announcing his title as uh, Messiah and King of the Jews, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. He's riding on a donkey. They're welcoming him. They're, they're, you know, they're shouts of a hosanna, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And so, you know, hosanna to him who, uh, who's who, who comes, the King of the Jews. So that's the idea of parousia is going out to meet the prominent ruler, the the designated important person. Go out. The people go out to meet him. Where they're at, they don't just sit still. They go. I'm, I keep emphasizing this for a reason. They go to meet him, and then the two of them, the people and the whoever the leader is, they all come back to the city. This becomes important for the post-trip view, which says that the rapture is not us just sitting around waiting for Jesus to come and rescue us and snatch us away from planet Earth. Rather, we have to move up to meet him in the air. And then, rather than going, continue our journey upward into the stratosphere, into heaven, then instead they say that, according to this word parousia, we go up, we meet the Lord in the air, and then we all come back down to earth to usher, the, to welcome the Lord to earth, and he establishes his thousand-year kingdom. And that's why the post-trib puts, that's one of the reasons why they put the rapture in the uh, second coming uh, as the same event, basically, which is entirely, like I said, is very Hebraic. It's because it's based on Old Testament uh, types. It's also very New Testament because it's, we can see it happening. We've got good reason to believe that this is the best meaning of the word parousia. And so it's no wonder that a lot of prominent Bible teachers, especially those who are in Messianic circles, hold to the post-trib. Um, John Piper is not Messianic, I'm sorry. Yeah, messianic in the sense of Torah, pro-Torah, Torah observant, that type of type of Bible teacher, Christian teacher. But he's post-trib for a number of reasons that we're going to read about tonight. Dr. Michael Brown, well-known apologist, messianic apologist, probably the most widely recognized, uh, well-known, uh, foremost uh, uh, Jewish apologist on the planet today. He is proudly post-trib. Um, Dr. Um, Craig Keener uh, is also post-trib, if I remember. He and Dr. Brown did a book and a video series on uh, why why they're not pre-trib and things like that. So they, they contrast the post with the pre, and both of them, if I remember right, are post. 
And there's a lot of other Bible teachers. Uh, Brother uh, Joel Richardson, who we used his materials when we looked at the Islamic Antichrist, um, he is also... He's, he's he by definition he is post trib although he has a lot of pre wrath respect and he'll sometimes say that he's betray- he's kind of a hybrid between pre wrath and post trib but based on the definitions of what post tribbers teach he admits that he must be post trib there as well uh, brother Thomas Ice if I remember if I'm getting his name correctly if I'm if I'm uh, uh, brother pastor professor doctor um, he is if I remember right he's post-trib um, a lot of messianics that I interact with at messianic congregations based on the details that surround post-trib that we're going to start reading about they are also post-trib so uh, let's begin to read a little bit about post-trib so here's Pastor John Piper, his answer on what is the rapture and when is it? He continues, those two advents are not far removed from one another. I'm sorry, I I realized that I broke off my thought about why I stopped and talked about advent. It's because the word parousia, from most perspectives, is the presence of Christ, not just the arrival, and not just the movement, not just the coming, but the presence of Christ. And when we think about the first presence where Yeshua was here on planet Earth, he his presence included a number of activities that span the uh, time frame from his birth to his to his being raised, which are kind of silent years. We don't know about what happened from. I mean, we have a lot of details in the Bible about his birth, and then there's a there's a kind of a huge gap where we just don't know what he was doing. We have some minor details, you know, when he was 12 years old or something like that, and he's in the temple interacting with some of the religious leaders there, Pharisees, Sadducees, etc. But then, not, we don't really know a lot about Yeshua's life until he finally enters public ministry, gets baptized by John the Baptist, enters into public ministry, starts doing miracles, etc., etc., fighting with the religious leaders, culminating in his uh, being um, tried and then uh, hung on the cross and then his time in the tomb and then the resurrection and then the time with the disciples after the resurrection and then finally the ascension and sitting at the right hand of the Father and then the sending of the Holy Spirit, his Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Well, all of that is inclusive of the first advent. That's the point I'm trying that I'm bringing up. Advent, when we talk about the parousia, the arrival of Christ, the first time included all of those events that I just described. But with equal detail, the second coming of Christ isn't just the rapture. The second parousia, and there's only two. There's the first parousia and the second parousia. The second parousia, the second coming of Christ, is not just the arrival or the coming or the rapture. Properly, the parousia, which is just one, includes the rapture, but there are, if we're going to be fair and honest, we're going to begin to notice that there are a lot of other events that Yeshua has to fulfill. Namely, we have the rapture, we have the battle at Armageddon, the second coming, we have the wrath of the Lord itself, the day of the Lord, the wrath of God being poured out by Yeshua, we have all of that. 
We have, uh, as I mentioned, the Battle of Armageddon, but we also have a number of other things, such as the salvation of Israel that needs to take place. We also have the sheep and goat judgment that needs to take place. We have the marriage supper of the Lamb that needs to take place. We have the Bema seat judgment that needs to take place. And then we have the Millennial Kingdom that needs to take place. And then after the Millennial Kingdom, we have another uh, battle that takes place. We also have the Great White Throne Judgment that takes place near the end. All of that, everything I just described, starting with Rapture and ending with, say, uh, Great White Throne Judgment, there are a lot of activities that need to take place, and yet all of that is parousia. All of that is Christ's presence the second time here on planet Earth. Right, because whenever Christ is here on Earth bodily, that's parousia, that's presence. So, uh, Pastor John called it Advent here in this uh, article. That's why I said the Advent is a season of waiting. We're not waiting for the birth of Christ any longer, but we are waiting the second Advent, meaning the second parousia, which includes all of these different events. That's going to become important as we begin to ask the questions: How many times is Christ coming back? Is the Rapture one coming? And the second coming, another coming? Is that two? Are there two second comings of Christ? And there are a lot, there's a lot of internet traffic, internet chatter uh, that uh, tries to make sense of what event is the rapture and what event is the second coming? Is it one event, but two aspects, two bookends, two um, uh, perspectives, whatever, um, two. two uh, um, uh, uh, what do we call it, events con- that are really connected by one, or are they two separate events, are there two second comings? This will make a little bit more sense as we read Pastor John's notes here. So let us let me just read down through his notes, uh, and then you'll see why I brought this up, why I'm not just um, rambling on for no reason. Those two events are not far removed from one another, nor should they be, he says. Christmas is a very fitting time to dwell on the return of Christ. But, Pastor Piper says, will Christ return in the future once or twice? Notice the question. Will Christ return in the future once or twice? It's a good question from a listener named Nick. right? And I don't think that is St. Nick. Okay, that's just my own um, humorous addition to his article here. All right, so here's the question. Pastor John, I know this is a huge debate, but, this is Nick talking, but I would love your thoughts. How many times is Jesus coming back? Is he coming back in the rapture, according to 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17, and then returning a second time to defeat Satan, according to Revelation 19, 11 and 12? 21, I'm sorry. Is Christ returning one more time or two more times? Now, it seems like a very simple question, and some might say, well, it's got a simple answer, but it doesn't get that simple when you consider all of the four different views and trying to make sense of rapture versus second coming. Remember, let me just look at some of the charts. According to this, according to most of the charts, there are at least two events. There's rapture on the far left, and second coming on the far right of any one of these given charts. But the post-trib puts rapture and second coming right on top of one another. So let's look at Pastor John's answer. Here's his answer. My understanding of the New Testament is that Jesus promised he would return, and 
that in this returning, he would do a final rescue for those who are trusting him and a final judgment for those who are not believing in him. Notice very carefully the two events that Pastor Piper is describing, the final rescue and a final judgment. Let's continue. Pastor Piper says, I don't think there are two comings of Christ in the future, but only one. Now, again, since we know in advance, since I've told you that Pastor John Piper, according to this article, at the time of writing, which was 2012, I don't know if he's changed his position since then, since some time has gone by, right? That's been more than 10 years ago. But when he wrote this article, he was decidedly post Trib. And he says, I don't think there are two comings of Christ in the future, but only one. So when we look at the post-trib chart, there we go, we see that the rapture and the second coming are right next to each other. Therefore, they would be one event and one coming of Christ, not two. However, in all fairness, I myself, being a pre-rather, I don't think there are two comings either. However, I do think there are two events. Rapture and second coming are two different events. But it's one parousia, one coming. How can I maintain that? Well, when you look at the... Sorry, here we go. When you look at the chart of pre-rapture, the rapture and the second coming are separated by the wrath of God, God's wrath, day of the Lord. However, that event known as God's wrath or day of the Lord is one single event that has multiple activities associated with it, right? There's a lot of stuff that's going to be taking place in that time frame. And at the very least, if we take Scripture in its most natural, literal sense, how long is God's wrath? What's the duration of the day of the Lord? Well, at the very, very least... According to my understanding, it is five months long. At the very least, I'll tell you why later. So, how long is it? How short is it? At the shortest, I put it at five months, but it could be a little bit longer, maybe a, a year, year and a half, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But by uh, so, I have one event called the Parousia, aka God's wrath, aka the Day of the Lord, aka the coming of Messiah. But there are bookends. There's the first part of the bookend, the earlier, the front end uh, event, and then the final bookend, the last event. So there are two events, but it's one parousia. So I don't need to say that there are two second comings, although some of the pre-tribbers are pressed into describing trib tribulation before the seven years and then second coming at the end. And some of them will describe it as two events. I'm sorry, not two events, definitely two events, but they'll sometimes describe it as coming twice. Once to come for his church and once to come back with his church, etc., etc. But Pastor John is saying, I don't think there are two comings of Christ in the future, but only one. And unfortunately, that doesn't really answer the question of what, which one, what is rapture and what is second coming. I say it doesn't because... All of the other for all of the other views could equally say we don't believe there are two comings in Christ in the future. We believe there's only one. Yet there are two separate events connected with the one single coming. So Pastor Piper's answer here, unfortunately, is just a bit ambiguous. It contains a little bit of equivocation. Uh, I don't know if he was aware of that when he said that, but he repeats his answer. I don't think there are two comings of Christ in the future. Only one and. 
um, as if that separates his view from the other views. Perhaps it would have helped, in my opinion, if he said, I don't think there are two events. There's only one. If he would have said it that way, I think maybe it would have been a little bit more explanatory. But let's keep reading his view anyway. He continues. Most of those who believe that Christ will come twice, notice he sets up what could be construed as a straw man perspective of the other three views if he says those who believe that Christ will come twice, uh, that the first return, the first of the two, he says, is the coming of the Lord to snatch away the church out of the world called the rapture. So he says, he describes this as those who believe that Christ will come twice. Well, again, if you ask, if you put all four of the views in a room and had a representative from each of those views and ask them, how many times will Christ come again? I think all four of them are going to say Christ is only going to come again once. But it sounds like only three of them would say that there are two aspects or events do primary events associated with the second coming one of those events being the rapture the other event being the second coming or the glorious return it goes through a few few different nicknames rapture is the most prompt the most uh, popular of the first of the two events and then the last one is like i said something called, just called the second coming or the glorious uh, presence or uh, something that effect. I had a little chart on here earlier that looked like this that just shows them as rapture on the left, second coming on the right. And we can see from this chart that they definitely have differing details associated with the events, giving us the conclusion that they, there are two separate events, but how far they're separated from one another, we don't know. So going back to Pastor Piper, he says, those who believe that Christ will come twice. I'm not one of those people, but... If you ask me, are rapture and the second coming the same thing? I'm going to say no. And I'm going to say I believe there must be a time frame that separates the two, a duration of time between the two that allows for X number of truths to be realized, certain Bible passages to and prophecies to be fulfilled in order for the Bible to be taken in its most natural sense. Therefore, I that's one of the reasons that you're going to hear me say that I reject the post-trib view is because they simply don't allow for enough they don't allow enough time for certain prophecies and bible verses to be understood most naturally and for certain events to take place uh namely like i said that 5 month time span which i'm not telling you why i believe that just yet i'll tell you by later but suffice to say he's setting up this difference between those who believe that the first return that there's um that Christ will come twice and those who believe that Christ will only come once and um, again, I'm not sure if he's aware of the ambiguity of saying it that way. But he talks about this word rapture. He continues, this rapture would be a snatching away of the church back to heaven for seven years. He's talking about the pre-trib, obviously. Usually while the great tribulation happens on earth. What you're going to find in most of these blogs that we're going to be going through, and I'm not doing this to pick on a certain view, but what you're going to find is that the pre-trib view, because it's the most popular of all the four views out there in Christian circles today, the pre-trib view becomes the whipping boy. It becomes the poster child for what you should not believe about the rapture. The pre-trib view has uh, the unfortunate position of being the one that suffers the most abuse 
and gets uh, attacked the most by the other three, as if everyone's picking on the pre-trib view all the time. And again, uh, part of it is because it's the most popular, and if you're gonna if you're occupying the top spot, everyone else is gonna take shots at you. That that just kind of makes sense. Part of it is because of a lot of people have become Christian circles have become dissatisfied and disillusioned and. Um, with all of the weak theology that surrounds the pre-trib view, the popularity of it being seen as somewhat superficial, etc., etc. And so the pre-trib view is going to be the one that's contrasted against any other view in just about every blog article that you're ever going to read. Pre-trib versus pre-wrath, pre-trib versus mid-trib, pre-trib versus post-trib. You're always going to find pre-trib being compared to whatever view that you yourself hold to, or no view, the pan-trib version, where everything's just going to pan out in the end, versus pre-trib, right? And then so you'll, if you do a Google search or a YouTube search for rapture, there are a ton of videos out there on why I don't believe in rapture anymore, or why rapture itself is unbiblical, or why rapture is not taught in the Bible, or rapture hoax or hope, or et cetera, et cetera. All of these attacks on rapture are usually using pre-trib as its model when we talk about there's no such thing as rapture. What they're saying really is there's no such thing as pre-trib, secret, anytime, imminent rapture. So there are features of pre-trib that are kind of foundational to its view, such as imminency, the idea that Jesus can come back in any moment, that it's unannounced, that it's signless, that there are no events that have to precede it, and that it is secret, that it's a rapture that's going to happen in the twinkling of an eye so fast that no one on earth will be able to anticipate it, and therefore it's a secret. No one else is going to know about it. So those are some of the aspects, plus the fact that it's pre-trib that it take place prior to the tribulation. And then at a but what a lot of people are finding out is that even at a surface level reading of the Bible, many of those claims, imminency, secrecy, pre-trib itself, all, many of those claims simply don't hold up to the biblical scrutiny. So that's why a lot of people are abandoning pre-trib and unfortunately what they're doing in the process is they're abandoning rapture. So I, at least I applaud Pastor Piper, for taking a view of rapture, retaining rapture, but just rethinking the timing. So he said, and later on we're going to see this in this article, that he actually even confesses that. This would be a snatching away, talking about rapture of the church. Back to heaven for seven years, usually while the great tribulation happens on earth. Then he says, this is followed by a final, uh, this is kind of the second stage, returning of the Lord to establish his kingdom. So he's going to use the word stages now, which I'm happy that he doesn't completely use the straw man aspect of saying two second comings, because that's not quite accurately to the way that many of in the other views are describing it. Rather, he's, he, he should properly say stages. At least that's the way that I'm uh, working with. And then he says, now, I grew up in a home and in a church that believed that view. He's talking about pre-trib. Um, he believed that view called pre-tribulation rapture view. It's called that because, he says, there's a coming of Christ pre or before the tribulation so that the church is taken out and spared that time of great suffering from the Lord at the end of the age. He continues, the more I studied this for myself... I can remember thinking about this event as a teenager. 
I just could not find two comings in the future for the Christian church. So he keeps going back and forth between the aspect of two comings and two stages. And as a pre raptor I'm going to make a careful distinction between those two terms, pun intended. I don't favor the term two comings, the, that, that phrase there, two comings. I prefer the phrase two stages of one coming. Because like Joel Richardson, who, is, who himself is also a post-tripper, just like Dr. Piper here, Joel Richardson is really going to hammer the fact that when you read through the Bible, there is only one parousia. There's only one coming of Christ. Now, John Piper, in, in all fairness, he's going to say that as well. So let's keep reading. I once asked a very reputable Old Testament scholar, a really scholarly Old Testament scholar, who believed this view. And here's the question. What is the most important text that persuades you that before Christ comes in judgment, he will come earlier to take the church out of the world and then only return in judgment seven, uh, years later, seven years later, or three and a half, maybe? So that's the question that John Piper asked this older, this elderly Christian uh, gentleman. His answer was unhesitating. He said, Revelation 3.10, it says this, Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I, these are the words of Jesus, of course, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who will dwell on the earth. In time, we will also look at that verse, and uh, I'll tell you what I think it means also. End quote for the verse out of the book of Revelation. This is Pastor John Piper continuing. In other words, speaking of that Old Testament saint that he asked, he thought that verse, that that verse taught that Christians would be taken out of the world before God brought a great trial or tribulation on the world. But does it? So this is the pre-trib view that John Piper is comparing with the post-trib view that he himself Holds to pre-trib is a foundation of their theology. It's right in their name. Is that Christians will be taken out of the way pre or prior to any tribulation, and if tribulation is equated with wrath, which according to their perspective it is, the proof is verse our verses where Jesus promises to protect us or keep us from the hour of trial or that we're not destined to wrath, right? The 1 Thessalonians 4.15, I believe, passage. Off the top of my head, I think it's 4.15, but we'll look at that later. Let's keep reading Pastor John Piper's notes. We've got 10 minutes left in study, and I, and I want to finish this one. He continues into his answer, Pastor Piper. God's promise to keep us from the hour of trial. He's interacting with the Revelation 3.10 passage that the, that the pre-trib... Uh, gentleman that he asked uh, uh, quoted. Pastor Piper says, God's promise to keep us from the hour of trial probably doesn't mean that we are taken out of the world, but rather that God will keep us from faith-destroying effects of the hour of trial. What Pastor Piper is describing is what many Messianics um, such as Joel Richardson, who is a post-tribber, Dr. Michael Brown, who's a post-tribber, um, uh, uh, Dr. Douglas Moo, who's also a post-tribber, and as I mentioned, I think um, uh, uh, Pastor Ice, I'll have to look at that name, that, him up just to make sure, but let's just stick with, for the moment, let's just stick with Dr. Michael Brown, um, Joel Richardson, and 
um, uh, Douglas Moo, and let's just put one more in there for good measure, uh, since he's such a prominent name, Dr. Craig Keener. Okay, so all four of those, we've got Brown, Keener, uh, Richardson, and Moo. All of them, and now let's put um, Piper in the list. So that's five. Five very well-known post-tribbers, and most of them have similar reasoning as to holding to post-trib, but one of those is what John Piper is going to describe here, is the idea that God isn't going to snatch us out of the way, rather, using the precedent, using the uh, the uh, antecedent theology, the um, example given in the book of Exodus, when the plagues were being poured out on Egypt, instead of rapturing Israel out of Egypt prior to the plagues being poured out, Instead, God sheltered them in place. He protected them supernaturally in the midst of danger. And we call this principle the Goshen principle, given to the fact that it was the land of Goshen where Israel was dwelling, where God put kind of like a protective bubble. John Piper is going to call it kind of protective custody, if I remember right, unless I'm mistaking his article and someone else was using that. But protective custody around Israel so that he sheltered them in place, and they were able to weather the storm, as it were, of the plagues that were being poured out on Egypt and ruining Egypt, and God instead didn't have to rapture them out of the way. And so, um, in time, we'll interact with that theology. We'll keep working through that and see if that's really the best way to understand what's going to happen in the end time as well. But for now, let's continue to let Pastor Piper describe post-trib theology. So, God's going to keep us from the faith-destroying effects of the hour of trial. He will guard us. He will protect our faith. So, um, he continues. In fact, First Peter says, and now here's a quote from chapter 4 of First Peter, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. First Peter 4.12 now, Pastor Piper interacts with this verse. I don't think it's a New Testament teaching that God rescues his people from trial, but he protects them through trial. By the way, I just using, if we're going to pick verse and compare verse to verse, off the top of my head, I could show Pastor Piper a verse out of 1 Thessalonians, the first chapter, where Jesus is said by Paul to rescue us from trial, from danger. He rescues us from wrath. First Thessalonians. Um, I think it's First Thessalonians. It could be another passage. It could be Romans. It's definitely one of Paul's writings, but I'm going to go with First Thessalonians, first chapter first. 1 Thessalonians 1. And Paul uses the word rescue. He doesn't use the word protect. And yet, elsewhere, Jesus talks about also words that um, uh, and Paul does too, words that are reminiscent of, of snatching us out of harm's way, uh, gathering, he will gather us unto himself, he will, he will um, uh, uh, gather or collect, or I think that the Greek word is the, um, the harpazo one, it could be that one, um, but it's the idea, there's about two or three Greek words that all have kind of similar meanings. The idea is that one of them is snatching us out of harm's way, kind of a rescue word. I think that's the one that, uh, the one I'm thinking of. And then there's another one where we're gathered, where uh, it has the nuance of moving someone or something out of harm's way, but more primarily with the idea of uh, collecting or bringing to oneself. Uh, and then there's one more word, um, um, uh, or something to that effect. But 
if I wanted to just um, uh, counteract Pastor Piper's uh, reasoning here, where he says he doesn't think that it's a New Testament thing that God rescues his people from trial, I could show him a passage that, no, that is exactly what Paul is teaching, rescuing us from trial. But it is equally true, I have, agree, I have to agree with Pastor Piper, that God actually does protect us through trial. We have the Goshen principle in the book of Exodus, where God protect, supernaturally protected Israel from the uh, plagues. But when we get to Noah, God didn't necessarily supernaturally protect Noah through the flood so much as that he actually took Noah out of the way. And especially when we get to Lot, God didn't keep Lot in Sodom and put a bubble around him while fire and brimstone rained down. No. Instead, Lot is actually taken out of harm's way. He is rescued. So the type and shadow or the, the, the pictures that are provided by different places of the Bible, depending on what you're reading, you're either getting the, the, the concept of this protection uh, through trial or this rescue from trial. Both of them are in view depending on which um, uh, uh, passage of the Bible or uh, aspect that you're looking at. Let's keep reading. Pastor Piper continues. He says, now, that's not a good enough answer to the view, right? He's talking about post-trib, which he holds to, and he's trying to answer the question that we that the um, Nick posed, um, are there two comings or are there one? Does Christ come once or does he come twice? Pastor Piper says that he believes that Christ comes once, not twice, but then he, he kind of... Um, uh, and uh, make uh, introduces a little bit of ambiguity by um, um, uh, obfuscating or conflating the terms second uh, coming with the word um, stages. Right? There's one coming, two stages. Are there two stages, two comings, two stages, one coming, one stage, two state, two comings, two stages, or one coming, two stages? Or one stage and two comings. I mean, uh, what, he's playing with those two words, and I'm, I wish he wouldn't have kind of conflated the two terms. But nevertheless, that's what we have. So he continues. He says the passages that settled the matter for me were Second Thessalonians one and Second Thessalonians two. Both of these chapters, he says, talk about the coming of the Lord, the second coming, in a way that makes two comings, one to rescue and one to judge, extremely unlikely, if not impossible, in view of what these verses say. Very important that we realize that what we're about to read is that there are two events associated with the one coming that Pastor John Piper is going to describe. So, Pastor Piper is setting up the scenario where there's one coming, but there definitely are two events associated one to rescue and one to judge. He is talking about that there are two, but he doesn't separate them by any significant time frame. He believes that that to separate them is to cause the confusion known as two comings, and he doesn't like that. He's going to keep steering clear of that perspective of two comings. He's going to say there's one coming. But when we talk about rescue and judge, he does believe that they, those two are happening. So let's read it here. Christ is coming again, and when he comes, he will repay unbelievers with affliction, and he will grant relief to believers. Now, he's going to slow down a little bit. Here's 2 Thessalonians 1, 6-8. Listen for how Paul treats the coming to give relief to Christians. That's one part. And the coming to give affliction to unbelievers. But he treats them both as one coming, according to Pastor Piper's view of Paul's writing. Both relief for us and affliction at the same time. So there are two details. There's 
affliction to unbelievers, that's one of the details, and there's relief for us Christians, uh, that's the second detail. So affliction and relief, those are the two details, one coming at the same time, according to Pastor Piper, which is the post-trib perspective. Here's what it says. Let's read the passage he just talked about. God cons- This is Paul talking in Thessalonians. God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflicted you and to grant relief to those who are afflicted as well as to us. And then Pastor Piper inserts his uh, commentary. So there's the two things that are going to happen. So he, he, he can't get away from that. And I agree. There are two things. Um, right? The afflicting, uh, repay with affliction, those who afflict you, that's one of the things. And to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well. Uh, that's the second of the two things. And when do they happen? When the Lord Jesus, and this is Bible again, not John Piper. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flame and fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of Lord Lord Jesus. So that's 2 Thessalonians 1. 6 through 8. And this, by the way, is a big de- point that's made by post-tribbers. Um, and all of the post-tribbers that I've reviewed, the, the five that I keep mentioning, Piper, Brown, Keener, uh, Richardson, and Moo, all five of those gentlemen, all of them I, I highly respect, all of them I utilize their materials in my writings uh, for in other areas, but all of them are post-trib and all of them I disagree with. But all of them have the same aspect and one of the reasons that they hold to post-trib is this reason here is that um jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know and this revealing this parousia the description that paul gives here is decidedly um, armageddon type language there's nothing rapture language about that where he says the lord is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire inflicting vengeance even though there are two um what what john piper says two things that are going to happen but nevertheless they're on top of one another at the end of the seven years let's continue reading pastor piper and finish out our study tonight this, so we're drawing this part to a close. His answer, now I think that very clearly teaches that Christ is coming again. And when he comes, he will repay unbelievers with affliction, and he will grant relief to believers. He says these two things happen. This is uh, Pastor Piper uh, interacting with uh, Paul's writing. He says these two things will happen. Quote, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven, end quote. So this is one coming, not two. That's the first text that persuaded me. Right? Notice when the Lord is revealed. It doesn't say that the two things are going to happen when the Lord is revealed once, and then the second one's going to happen when he's revealed the second time. In other words, Pastor Piper's making a note that the Bible describes one revealing, right? One parousia, if we were to go back and look up the original Greek, I believe, for this passage, when the Lord is revealed from heaven, it doesn't say that the first time he's revealed from heaven, and then the second time he's revealed from heaven, as if there are two separate revealings or two separate comings to correspond with the two different things, the repaying of the unbelievers with affliction and the granting relief to believers. So that's one of the things that Pastor Piper says of the text that persuade him. Then in 2 Thessalonians, we read this. 
Let's read another part. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. This is the very famous rapture passage from 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 and 2. Let's keep reading Pastor Piper's comments. Someone had said to these Christians that the day of the Lord had already come, and Paul is arguing that can't be. Now, how easy it would have been for him to say, it can't be, this is a a supposed quote from Paul, if in fact there were um, other than one coming involved. Now, it can't be because I'm still here. I haven't been raptured away. Quote, unquote. This is Pastor Piper speaking now. But he didn't say that. That's not what he said. This is Pastor Piper's reacting to what uh, Paul just said. He said, quote, let no one deceive you in any way for that day. These are Pastor Piper's inserts now. For that day, the Lord's day that he just referred to, will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. That's 2 Thessalonians 2, 2-3. to Then, he says, look at 2 Thessalonians 2, 8. Here's our quote. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming, end quote. So notice the language in 2 Thessalonians 2.8 that Paul uses that is connected to the earlier part where he talks about the day of the Lord, etc., etc. Let's look at Pastor Piper's um, uh, response. Just like in chapter 1, there's one coming, and Paul says it hasn't happened yet because the man of lawlessness, that is the Antichrist, has not been revealed. All right, just pause and think about that. The second coming, which of there's only one, hasn't happened yet. Why? Because the man of lawlessness, that is the Antichrist, has not been revealed. Right, which means he's talking about the timing of the second coming, the timing of the rapture. I say second coming because in his view, second coming and rapture are the same thing, the one parousia. But he's talking about the timing in relationship to the man of lawlessness being revealed. And for our natural understanding of Paul, the man of lawlessness must come first. That is, the Antichrist has not been revealed. When that happens, Piper says, then he said, speaking of Paul, then he said the second coming will happen, and it won't be to snatch Christians away, but to kill the lawless one with the breath of his mouth and the appearance of his coming. And when does those when do those things happen? The killing of the lawless one, and etc. When when does that happen? That is decidedly. Armageddon language. When is Armageddon? That is near the end of Daniel's 70th week, near the end of the seven years, and by most reckoning, at the end of the 30 days, at the end of the seven years. But let's just suppose we're wrong about the 30 days. Let's just say it's at the end of the seven years. Either way, almost every view of the four that we're talking about agrees that Armageddon is at the end of the seven years, not at the beginning of the seven years, which puts the second coming on top of Armageddon, which when Christ returns, we're talking about Revelation chapter 19, right? Um, Christ comes back on a white horse with his saint, with the sword coming out of his mouth, and he he um, kicks 
uh, Antichrist and the uh, false prophet into the lake of fire, all right, or destroys them, uh, one of the two. So um, there's some details there we'll have to work out in time. But the point is, we're describing a end of the seven-year time frame event, which conveniently fits with the post-trib perspective that the second coming of Christ is at the end when Armageddon happens when he deals with the Antichrist. So this is what Pastor Piper is banking on, right? Certain verbiage that talks about um, one coming, not two. And the timing coming after the revealing of Antichrist and particularly dealing with the, the destruction of Antichrist, um, et cetera, et cetera. Now, he's circling back around again to talk to the, uh, the person who sent the question. Now, Nick refers to the rapture in 1 Thessalonians 4, wondering if that refers to a first of two comings followed by a later one. Here are the key verses. Now, we have some more quotes from Paul. Paul says the second coming hasn't happened yet because the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, has not been revealed. I'm sorry, that's a, um, the, the, the key details from what Paul is quoting. Um, now we have the quote from Paul in Thessalonians. For, I'm sorry, this is, uh, yeah, Thessalonians, First uh, Thessalonians, for the classic raptor passage. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the... Um, uh, Archangel, 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 and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. So, um, Pastor Piper says, that's sometimes called the rapture. No problem. I've got no problem calling it the rapture. Then Paul concludes, and so we will always be with the Lord. So, even if you're a pre-trip, a post-tripper, you still can't shy away from the upward movement known as rapture where we're going up to meet the Lord um, because the, the passage is described that way. We'll be caught up to meet together with them in the clouds. Who's to them, by the way? It's the resurrected saints who, who precede those who are alive. Right, so that's the the, um, the the detail of what we call rapture. Now, Pastor Piper's concluding, and we're drawing we're drawing our study to a close as well. I'm going a little over, I realize. Now, my understanding of these verses, this is Pastor Piper. My understanding of these verses, and I don't see any reason to think otherwise, is that yes, we believers will indeed rise to meet the Lord in the air. That's what it says. It's like a great welcoming crowd. Remember what I talked about earlier about the parousia, the definition of going out to meet. The, the leader, he's going to talk about this now. Then he says, we will descend with him in his triumphant arrival. I recall how stunned I was when I was around 23 years old, and I saw for the first time that the word meet, caught up to meet the Lord in the air, is used two other times in the New Testament, Matthew 25, 6 and Acts 28, 15. Pastor Piper continues, in both of these places, it is a group of people going out to meet someone and accompanying them back into the place you just went out from. That is the Greek word parousia in the ancient world's perspective of going out to meet someone and accompanying them back into the place you just went out from. All of my thoughts about this being a rising to meet the Lord in the air and then returning to heaven for seven years evaporated. That's just not the intention of that verse. In time, we'll interact with this view and why I believe that it's not necessary to force that first century cultural understanding of the word parousia 
into the exact timing of when we go up to meet the Lord, how long we stay with Him, and then how long before we come right back down again. There are definitely two movements, one going up and one coming down, but how long do we spend in the up uh, with Christ and how long before we come back down? That's really the question. We'll talk about that later on. Let's keep going tonight with Pastor Piper. It's a rapture in that sense that we rise to meet the Lord in the air, and then like a great band of welcoming, we come back with Him for His established judgment and rule. Now is a good time to just flash back over to the um, post-trib view that we're describing. This is John Piper's view. The two arrows on the farthest right of your screen, white arrow pointing up, black arrow pointing down. That is the post-trib rapture going up, second coming back coming back down, and we basically do a, a quick U-turn in the air. We go up, we meet the Lord in the air, along with the resurrected saints who rose before us, along with a bunch of angels, and then the whole lot of us, the risen uh, saints, the the resurrected saints, the transformed saints, the, the angels and the Lord himself, all of us, the whole entourage, we come right back down to planet Earth to um, do battle with the Antichrist at the Battle of Armageddon. That's all of that that uh, John Piper is describing. So he says it's a rapture in the sense that we rise to meet the Lord in the air, and then like a great band of welcoming, parousia, right? We come back down uh, with him for his established judgment and rule, which takes place after we uh, after Antichrist is dealt with. My answer, so he's closing, and this is his concluding answer. My answer is that there's one great, glorious second coming of the Lord in our future. He will come once more to give relief to his church and judgment to his adversaries and to establish his kingdom. And I say, as I'm sure we all do with the early church, the next last verse of the Bible, come Lord Jesus. And that's the end of his answer. So what we just described by Pastor Piper is a post-trib view. And this is a view, and, and I'm saying this in closing, this is a view that has us being raptured near the end of the 70th week, and we quickly go up, we meet the Lord in the air, we also meet the resurrected saints, and then we, we along with the angels and the Lord, we all come back down to earth, and Armageddon takes place, and then some. maybe there's some other events, uh, you know, the sheep and goat judgment or something like that. But eventually, the big events on the, on the scene are second rapture slash second coming, and then millennial kingdom being ushered in, where believers are ushered into the kingdom, where the believers are um, um, left behind to enter into the kingdom, and the wicked in Christ, the wicked in Christ, that's an oxymoron, the wicked on planet Earth, wicked in, wicked in Antichrist, the wicked... Uh, on planet Earth are taken in judgment along with the Antichrist and removed out of the way. So that's the uh, scenario that's painted by Pastor Piper. And in closing, as I mentioned, as far as I can recall, Pastor John Piper, Dr. Michael Brown, Professor Craig Keener, Professor uh, Douglas Moo, and author Joel Richardson, to name at least five that uh, off the top of my head, they all hold the similar view of post-trib, which is also held by a lot of messianics. Um, perhaps even Michael Rood, I believe. I have to look a little bit more closely at his perspective. And I know a lot of friends who are in messianic circles that hold to this particular perspective as well. I don't hold to this perspective. I hold to the pre-wrath view, which we'll get to in time. But uh, what we're going to do next week is we'll start looking at more intensely at the pre-trib rapture belief 
uh, as we work our way towards um, a pre-wrath understanding, and we'll turn directly into Brother Aaron Eggman's um, uh, blog and website here from uh, this pre-wrath resource. But that'll do it for eschatology, a biblical study of end-time events. These are the live internet studies brought to you week after week by myself, Arielbin Lyman Hanavi, I'm a torture at Congregation K. Latunavada Harvest in uh, Thornton, Colorado. Find us online at grafting.com and join us in, in person for our live Sabbath services. But if you're not able to join us, at least as I mentioned, join us online and um, you can see the link to the video right there on my screen as well. These uh, live internet studies are a part of my own um, Torah teaching ministry, which parks itself on the web at tetzetorah.com. That's T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H.com. I'd love to have you join me at my own home uh, personal website there and uh, browse around and take a look through all the uh, commentaries that you see on my screen right now as well. I also have a YouTube channel that I'd be delighted if you uh, popped in and um, took a look around there as well. YouTube.com forward slash C forward slash Tate Torah Ministries. If you do hit my website, uh, my YouTube channel there, be sure to uh, take notice that I update the uh, site essentially daily, uploading videos daily. Make sure then to subscribe, hit the bell for notifications, leave thumbs up for all the videos that you like. Um, leave me some comments and questions about things you have um, uh, your own thoughts on. And be sure to share the content with your other friends and family members in your social media circles, okay? Just some brief important uh, details. If you'd like to join us for our live studies, be sure to get access to Skype somehow. If you're on my website right now, um, uh, during the live study and you click on that blue Skype link, it'll actually open up Skype in your browser and you can just join us right there. And we hope you can join us live because we engage in a live Q&A after the study is over, opening up the microphones and it's exclusively to the um, uh, live studies um, uh, that we uh, enjoy engage in that live study uh, Q&A. But if not, um, take one last moment to scroll to the very bottom of my website where you can see some Hebrew writing and the black section down there. And uh, preferably consider partnering with me to take the Torah around the world uh, in this particular format. You can click on the little yellow donate button and um, bless me that way with your uh, financial gifts and contributions. And I'm so uh, blessed to be able to be in a place where I can receive uh, your generous gifts. Uh, thank you to all of those who have given in the past and are continuing to give. I'm so uh, thrilled to be on the receiving end of, of your generosity. And as I always say, be blessed as you seek to be a blessing to others. Let's turn to a Trinitarian response to biblical Unitarianism. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. This is a look at a topic of interest that is particularly apologetic in nature. Trinity versus non-Trinity. Particularly, we're comparing and contrasting the Trinitarian understanding of God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one being three persons, with the non-Trinitarian perspective of Biblical Unitarian, as is represented by this particular web resource, biblicalunitarian.com. And they believe that there's one God, the Father, who is numerically equivalent to the God that's mentioned in the Bible. In other words, God and the Father are, are the same um, being, and therefore it's not necessary to imagine that there are persons of God. There are three significant titles or names or uh, aspects of God that we can interact with, yes. We have God the Father, and then we have His 
Son, the human being, Jesus Christ. And then we have the Spirit of God, who um, is very God himself. So they have those three, but their version of Trinity, they don't use the word Trinity in the same way that we Trinitarians use the word Trinity. I am a Trinitarian. I'm a biblical Trinitarian. I'm not a biblical Unitarian. So... God the Father is one God. Jesus Christ is the human being that has been exalted by God, and therefore he enjoys the status of the one and only Messiah coming to the world for the purpose of salvation, and he sits at the right hand of the Father, and he is worthy of worship because God commands it so, right? That's how we can worship Jesus uh, the way we do as Christians, and yet not commit blasphemy by worshiping another God, so-called in their view. The Holy Spirit, from their perspective, as far as I can tell, he is not a third person of the Trinity. He is not an active force like the Jehovah's Witnesses describe. He isn't. He's not an. He he is a bit impersonal, but mostly he's simply just another name for God. That's my that's my understanding of their understanding. If I'm interacting with their understanding accurately, so what we've been looking at is Isaiah nine verse six, and we read it. We read Biblical Unitarian's answer to this passage. We already know that this is a well-known passage, well, a popular passage that shows up around Christmas time, and it is a passage used to show that these titles that are given to this child in Isaiah clearly, at least from the Trinitarian perspective, clearly evoke a divine person because of the names that are ascribed to the child are names that are naturally ascribed to God himself. But what we found from Biblical Unitarian's perspective, and we read this last week, so go back and listen to last week's show if you're not sure. What we found from Biblical Unitarian's perspective is that there are different definitions of the of some of the key terms that were that are uh, utilized by the Biblical Unitarians versus the Trinitarians. Namely, when we begin to look at the terms, they believe that the Trinitarian translations, and we're going to look at the translations tonight, they believe that the Trinitarian versions are, what do they say? Oops, I want to go there. They believe, here's their explanation, they believe that the Trinitarian uh, translations are actually mistranslated. Uh, in other words, um, just simply mistranslated. Let me just show you right here. The phrase, and they're, they're, they're picking on Everlasting Father, first of all. The phrase is simply mistranslated. Not, not could be translated one way or the other. No, it's just mistranslated, right? So, there, uh, in the end, they see that all of these different terms have different uh, ways of interacting with um, the, the God that is... Uh, Promising that this child will once come. I'm scrolling down through this quickly because we, we've already read the entire um, the entire uh, answer. So let's interact with their answer a little bit. First thing I want to do is just highlight the fact that the version that they are fond of using is called the Revised English Version, and it's available online at revisedenglishversion.com. www.revised. So it's the R E V. And what's really neat about this resource, and I, I say this even though I'm not a Unitarian, is this resource is is a verse by verse and has a lot of helpful commentary, but the commentary is Unitarian leaning. But other than that, it's very, very helpful. I mean, they go into the particulars of the Greek and the Hebrew and the Aramaic and 
so it's, it's a good Bible study resource. So, I mean, I, I think it's great to have it in your toolkit. I believe you. we should be informed. Don't just believe what you believe because some guy on the internet said it, because some pastor said it, because some seminarian said it, because you read it in a, a book from the library. Don't believe things just because of that. But rather, I'm a strong advocate of studying things out, which means you have to study both perspectives so that you can know uh, what you believe and why. Okay, so here's the passage in the REV. Quote, this is Isaiah 9-6, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will call his name Wonderful Counselor, Mighty Hero, Father of the Coming Age, Prince of Peace. So notice that the, the, four, the, the four sets of titles Rather than the familiar-sounding, um, wonderful, uh, the ones that we're used to hearing where the names are reminiscent of God's names, instead, this child is, is called by names that could simply apply to a human being, but not necessarily have to describe that human being in divinity terms. He doesn't have to be a deified person to be called the father of the coming age. Remember, uh, Biblical Unitarian said last week that a uh, wonderful counselor can be applied to any human. Mighty hero, instead of um, mighty God, the word God there is the Hebrew word Elohim, and therefore they remind us that the word Elohim in the Bible, by context, gains its definition from either God himself or a false god like an idol or um, a, a ruler of the people, such as a prince or some form of magistrate, even a judge or a high priest can be an Elohim, or the angels themselves, the good angels are called Elohim in some passages, but also even the bad angels, right, are called Elohim. But so amongst all of those various usages, because one of the nuances is simply a person of prominence in any given passage, they're going to opt for that when they say mighty God. What we're used to reading as Trinitarians is mighty God, they're going to change into the mighty hero. And then father of the coming age, instead of everlasting father, they're going to take this Hebrew word um, that we're going to look at in time. They're going to translate it as uh, the ages, or etern instead of eternity, they're going to turn it back down into coming age or age. The word coming there is inserted by context from their perspective. Really, it's father of the age, but age is the age to come, meaning the not just the messianic age that has been um, initiated at Yeshua's uh, coming into the world the first time, uh, 2,000 years ago, but ultimately the coming messianic age, meaning the thousand-year uh, millennial time frame. So, but that's their version of the Bible. Wow, didn't mean to do that. So that's their version of the Bible, uh, Isaiah 9-6. Let's now look at um, some other versions of the Bible. What I want to do uh, first, uh, well, I, should, I didn't have those in order. Give me a second. I want to move that over. Let's look at the versions of the Bible first from other different Christian versions. Um, I'm not going to read the whole passage. I'm going to let you look at them. I just want to point out the four names. Notice in the NIV, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. New Living Translation, uh, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. English Standard, same thing, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Brian Standard, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. King James, 
a wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. So they had some articles in front of the labels. NKJV is identical, except they took out the uh, articles. Uh, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. A new American standard is um, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. NASB 95, same. NASB 1997, same. Legacy standard. Uh, same as the, the traditional reading, popular reading, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So uh, when I say same or popular, um, then I'm saying the same as all of the others that have come before. The popular Trinitarian reading, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, those are all the same. Christian Standard. Uh, same. Holman Christian Standard. Same. American Standard Version. Uh, same. Aramaic Bible in plain English. Now we have some changes. Wonder and the Counselor. God, the mighty man of eternity, the Prince of Peace, and the Father of Eternity. Interesting. Britain Septuagint. We're going to get to this one in a moment as well. Uh, I have to read the whole verse because it's it's like a paraphrase. For a child is born to us and a son is given to us whose government is upon his shoulder and his name is called the messenger of great counsel for I will bring peace upon the princes and health to him. Okay. Contemporary English version. Wonderful advisor, mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace. Dewey Reigns Bible. Wonderful, wonderful, comma, counselor, comma, God the mighty, comma, the father of the world to come, the prince of peace. So they actually give five titles. They, they separate wonderful from counselor. Uh, English revised version, traditional, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. God's word translation, um, uh, the traditional reading, good news translation, um, traditional reading that you put quotes behind uh, next to each one in front of each one. Um, international Standard Version is the traditional reading as well. JPS Tanakh is obviously not traditional. What they do to to avoid some of the confusion or some of the controversy, they simply transliterate the Hebrew. Here, here's what the JPS 1917, so it's over 100 years old version, reads. For a child is born to us, a son is given to us, and the government is upon his shoulders. And his name is called Pele Yoetz, well it says Joetz, but it's Yeh, it's, there's a Yud here. Pele Joetz El Gibor Abi Ad Sar Shalom. That's the way their translation reads. And so, again, they just transliterate the Hebrew. I'll read the Hebrew for you in a moment if, if we have time, if we get to it. Literal standard version, for a child has been born to us, a son has been given to us, and the dominion is on his shoulder, and he calls his name Wonderful, comma, Counselor, comma, Mighty God, comma, Father of Eternity, comma, Prince of Peace. Majority Standard Bible is the traditional reading, the um, familiar one that we're used to. New Americans uh, Bible, um, this is a little different as well. For a child is born to us, a son is given to us, upon his shoulder dominion rests. They name him Wonder-Counselor, so Wonder-Counselor, comma, God-Hero, comma, Father-Forever, comma, Prince of Peace. Uh, the Net Bible, for a child has been born to us, uh, a son has been given to us. He, he shoulders responsibility and is called, colon, extraordinary strategist, comma, mighty God, comma, everlasting father, comma, prince of peace. And then we have the new revised standard version, 
um, which it looks like the traditional reading to me. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. New Heart English Bible is the traditional reading. Webster's Bible translation looks like the traditional reading. It looks like a KJV where they've got the articles in front of each name, the showing up in front of each one, uh, except for the first one. Uh, World English Bible um, looks very close to the traditional reading. Young's Little Translation. Let's read that one since it's different. For a child hath been born to us, a son hath been given to us, and the princely power is on his shoulder, and he doth call his name Wonderful Counsel, Wonderful Comma, Counselor Comma, Mighty God Comma, Father of Eternity Comma, Prince of Peace. Period. Okay, so those are the translations that we have before us. Of course, that's not exhaustive. They're just the major English ones that are supplied by this tool that I'm using, which is BibleHub.com. Okay, so having said that, looking at all those, we can see that there's nothing entirely wrong with the Biblical Unitarian favoring the REV version that they do, where they have good license to simply say, we don't want to follow the traditional popular view, which has the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We see that there are different ways that the original Hebrew can be utilized even when we get to the Greek of the Septuagint, it even gets really, really different than what we're used to hearing. So I get that. I get that. And that's a healthy exercise to be aware of, to perform for yourself when you're doing critical Bible studies as to what the Bible really says. You want to do your structural analysis where you compare version to version and you want to read the context. So let's do that next. Let's go back and read context. Let's read verse 1 down through verse, let me look at it. Um, I don't want to read the whole passage. Not necessary for me. But let me see. Um, Probably down through verse uh, seven. So one through seven, because that's where the the um, the um, psalmic shows in the Hebrew over on the right side screen, right there, uh, right there. And that psalmic psalmic uh, Hebrew letter tells me that that's from the Hebrew mind's perspective. That's a break in the paragraph thought. Let's start, let's use the Hebrew as our guide. All right, so let's read uh, the passage, just the first seven verses, to catch the context. Um, Isaiah says, starting in verse 1, But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea, on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. We also know, if you know your Bible well enough, that this Isaiah verse, starting in verse 1, is quoted for us in the book of Matthew. So, um, especially the very last part where it says, um, speaking of where Yeshua is going to be coming from, uh, his birth town and stuff, um, by way of the sea, the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, from where he comes from, from Galilee. And then uh, verse 2, yeah, can we do that? Yeah, let's blow it up. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. Verse 3, you shall multiply the nation, you shall increase their gladness. By the way, I'm sorry, uh, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light, and those who live in dark land, the light will shine on them. We also know that that verse is repeated by uh, the New Testament writers as well. I think it's in the same Matthew passage, if I remember. Verse 3, 
You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence, as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. We're reading the entire context of Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. Verse 4, For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, as at the battle of Midian. So Isaiah is prophesying about what this ruler, what this child, we're going to read about when we get to it, what this ruler of Israel is going to be accomplishing. And I'm reading the context because I want you to pay very close attention to the scope and the magnitude of what this ruler is supposed to accomplish. Starting in verse 5, for every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult, in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. Now we get to the famous verse, verse 6, or verse 5 in the, uh, the, uh, the Hebrew Bibles, but verse 6 in your English versions. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. This is NASB version of the Bible, by the way. Son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, comma, Mighty God, comma, Everlasting Father, comma, Prince of Peace, period. That's the verse from the NESB. Let's keep reading what's going to happen to this ruler. There will be no end to the increase of his government of peace. No end. Remember that. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. Listen to this part. From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. That's verse 7, and that's where we're going to end. So why did I read all of that in context? One of the main things, sorry, one of the main things we need to take note of is what will this child accomplish during his rule? And one of those things, besides the titles that we saw in the previous verse, right? Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, the government resting on his shoulders, things like that. Besides focusing on just the titles, we have to, by context, focus on what God promises through the prophet this child is going to accomplish in his lifetime or in the during the span of his kingdom, and more importantly, <clears throat> how long will it last? Uh, God says to the prophet, there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of his David and over this kingdom to establish it and to uphold it from justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore, the Lord of zeal of hosts will accomplish this. This becomes important because with every successive Davidic king who sat on the throne, starting with David, remember the promise given to Israel that the uh, that David would be the righteous king to sit on the throne, and then the success, excuse me, successive kings after him. With every king of Israel that sat on David's throne, there was always the overarching promise in the Bible that the ultimate righteous king would rule eternally from the throne of David, and yet every um. Uh, what do we say, every temporal king, every earthly king that sat on the throne would be would rule, but then yet would pass away. David himself ruled and then died. He passed away. And then Solomon after him and then other kings after him. 
They ruled, and yet then they passed away. They died. So their, their time on the throne was limited to the lifetime of the king. But there was always the messianic promise that there would be this righteous king who would one day rule from the throne, and to his uh, rulership, to his throne, there would be no end. Meaning at some point in time, when he sat down on the throne, he wouldn't, his, his rulership wouldn't come to an end. And so we, we, we have to always interact with the prophecies in this way. We have to always remember that the prophecies have a near and a far aspect to them. We learned this in our eschatology study, that the near aspect always pointed to some future event in Israel's time that was closer to the prophet when he was writing, usually within a generation like you know 30 years, 60 years, 100 years, etc., and yet there was always this also farther aspect where there was the greater final culmination fulfillment, the greater fulfillment of whatever the prophet was talking about. When it, so when it comes to David, when we're talking to a king sitting on the throne, we have the immediate king who could be any number of earthly kings, but then we always have the final culmination and fullest fulfillment, which can only be King Messiah because he is of the, he has a life he has a promise to sit on the kingdom um, in perpetuity. So that's the point I'm trying to highlight. Now, let's begin to turn to some of the Hebrew and look at it. Um, in Isaiah chapter 9, 6, we already saw that the JPS version is simply a transliteration of the Hebrew. Let's read some of the clauses in Hebrew. And the first part, this is using the same Bible Hub tool. You can see on your screen I've got... It looks kind of busy, unless you've seen this page before. Reading from top to bottom, this is what we call the morphology. Um, from top to bottom, we've got the Strong's numbers along the top here of any given Hebrew word. Um, like this, uh, Strong's number 3205 is Yulad. So that, if I were to click on that, it's going to bring up the Strong's concordance. Below that, we've got a transliterated Hebrew, Y-U-L-A-D, that shows how you can read the word if you can't read Hebrew. Immediately below that, we have the Hebrew. Let's just zoom in a little bit so you can see everything I'm talking about. There we go. Uh, below that, any, on, on this tool, in any given word, so let me start over. We've got uh, Strong's number. Wow, didn't mean to do that. There we go. We've got Strong's number at the very, very top, which is hot-linked to the Strong's concordances on this tool. Below that, we've got the translated word, literated word, which is the same link. If I remember, if you click on it, it'll just take you straight to the same Strong's uh, number for that particular word, uh, Yulad, in this particular case. And then below that, we've got the original Hebrew script itself, uh, reading from uh, right to left um, for the Hebrew. Below that, in kind of a brick red, a, a, a deep orange, I guess it's supposed to be red, but um, we've got the word in English, the translation, is born. And then below that, we've got the, try that one more time, see if I can catch just that. There we go. We've got the full-blown morphology of the verb in the pu'al with a perfect uh, third masculine singular. And, and even if I hover over it, if I scroll up a little bit, if I hover over it, you can't see it uh, because it's so small, but I can read it. It says, verb in the pool, perfect third-person masculine singular. It's what those, um, what those uh, uh, abbreviations stand for. But anyway, that's the, um, ver uh, the uh, tool we're using. So let's just read some of the clauses. The first three words says, 
Yeled Yulad, for a child is born. And then the very next word that we're used to hearing is Lanu, unto us. So the first four words, um, for a child is born unto us. Ki Yeled Yulad Lanu. And then the next few words, the next three words, Bain Nitan Lanu, unto us a child is given, unto us. Um, so unto us, I'm sorry, Ben, let's try that one again. Ben Nitan Lanu, a son is given unto us. And I'm reading it that way because that's what we're used to hearing in our little, during the Christmas time. Unto us, a child is born. Unto us, a son is given. It's very poetic sounding. So, um, Ki Yeled Yulad Lanu, unto us, a child is born. Ben Nitan Lanu, unto us, a son is given. And then we drop down to the next set of words. And it will be, which is um, Vathi, and it will be Vathi Hamisra al Shikhmo, and the government will be upon his shoulder. That's what we're used to hearing in our uh, during the Christmas time, and the government will be upon his shoulder. But uh, in this version, and and will be the government upon his shoulder, uh, Shikhmo. And he will be called Vayikha, which is also the name of the third book of the Bible in the Torah, uh, the five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Vayikha, and shall be called Vayikha is the Hebrew name. So Vayikha, uh, Vayikha, and will be called, and he will be called. And then we have our familiar um, doublets of names, which of which there are four. His name, uh, and his name... Uh, I'm sorry, and we b- will be called his name Vayikra Shmo, uh, and his name will be called. Those two go together in our little familiar Christmas rendering. Vayikra Shmo, and his name will be called. Now we have the doublets of names. Pele Yoates. So we have Pele right there, and Yoates right there. I'll read all of these uh, one more time, um, highlighting each one, because I know many of you can't read the Hebrew. So um, I'm I'm not being really fair to you, but Pele uh, Yoetz, that's wonderful counselor. And then we have God Mighty, which is El Gibor, which happens to be the name of the synagogue of my good friend um, Lee and KJ, who join me from time to time uh, in the live class uh, every week after week. Um, and the name of their synagogue is uh, Beth El Gibor, House of the Mighty God. Beth is house, which most of you probably already know from Bethlehem. House of the Mighty God, Beth El Gibor. Visit them sometime online, BethElGibor.org. BethElGibor.org? Yeah. Um, I'll flash a little graphic on the screen in case you, you didn't catch that. But um, Yoetz uh, El Gibor, um, El Gibor, Mighty God. Then we have the next one, uh, Everlasting Father shows up. Uh, just looking as like one Hebrew phrase there, Aviad. And then the last two, Sar Shalom, Prince of Peace. So let me go back one more time and just show you each Hebrew word. Um, we have Ki Yeled Yulad Lanu, Bain Nitan Lanu, Vathi Amisra. Did I do it right? Vathi Hamisra al Shikmo Vaikra Shmo Hele Yoates El Gibor Aviad Sar Shalom. 
All right, so that's the original Hebrew, and it's probably easier for you to see it on this page right here. So, um, so now that we've looked at the Hebrew, let's begin to um, continue um, uh, discussing what are the, some of the possibilities. As we look at one more translation, I'm sorry, two more translations before I start to turn some of the, to some of the answers, um, it's helpful to know that Judaism's perspective on this drives a lot of biblical Unitarians' perspective on who this passage is talking about. It's no secret that uh, Rabbinic Judaism today, non-Messianic Judaism today, rejects Jesus as the candidate for these passages. But what may be unknown to many of you is that unlike Biblical Unitarianism, Rabbinic Judaism goes back and forth between whether or not they agree that this is either an earthly king or the King Messiah himself. Meaning, there are some rabbis who say, yes, this is King Messiah, and they give him a, a kind of a low Christological status. He's, he's exalted king. He's not God, but he certainly is more powerful than any and more prominent than any ordinary king. So maybe that is similar to Biblical Unitarian, because they at least recognize that Jesus is no ordinary human. Um, but I guess the point I'm saying is that the uh, Biblical Unitarian perspective often doesn't give enough weight of evidence to the New Testament, which makes me wonder why they even use the label Christian in their denominational description of themselves. But what we're going to do now uh, in closing is begin to just point you in the direction of looking at what the ancient rabbis thought about this particular passage. Um, let me just read uh, uh, these translations real quick, and um, and then we'll call, call it quits. And next week we'll start by turning and looking at uh, some of the um, Greek. Uh, but focusing on the Hebrew, this first one is the revised JPS 2023 version. Remember, the original JPS was way back in 1917. And so, here's another version. Um, so, let's read it here. This is available, by the way, on safaria.org, www.safaria.org. And they, the, the version in the English that I'm reading here on the screen says, For a child has been born to us, a son has been given to us, and authority has settled on his shoulders. He has been named, the mighty God is planning grace, the eternal Father, a peaceable ruler. And we can tell from their translation that it's more of a paraphrase. If we were to go over to the right side of this same resource and scroll down, you'll see that they have some other translations. They have... Um, there we go. They have the um, revised. Uh, uh, oops, didn't mean to do that. Give me a second. Back to translations. There we go. They have the um, the one we just read, the revised uh, JPS version. But then, if you scroll down, they have the 1985. Oops, they have the 1985 version of the JPS as well. For a child has been born to us, a son has been given to us, and authority has settled on his shoulders. He has been named the mighty God is planning grace, the Father, 
uh, the Eternal Father, a peaceable ruler, which, as far as I can tell, is identical to the revised version uh, from the 85 to the 23. But if we keep scrolling down, they gave some more. The 1917 one we read earlier, for a child is born unto us, a son is given unto us, and the government is upon his shoulder, and his name is called Pele Joet El Gibor Abi Ad Sar Shalom. Again, the translation uh, is just transliteration. But then they also add the Koran Jerusalem Bible. Uh, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government is upon his shoulder, and his name is called Pele Yoetz El Gibor Avi Ad Sar Shalom, which, again, it's simply a transliteration of the Hebrew. Below that, there's a German version, which I'm not even going to try and pronounce, Den Ein Kind East Uns Geboren. Okay, I'm just having fun. Before that, uh, there's an Esperanto version. And below that, they have a French version on this website. Uh, below that, there is the uh, Samuel Cahen version, which looks like, like another French version to me. There's, I'm sorry, yeah, two French versions, Polish version, and then they've got a Yiddish version. Okay, so those are some other translations we could go with if we um, were really interested, but we're not going to do that tonight. My point was simply that, um, Biblical Unitarian, and I'm saying this in closing, Biblical Unitarian draws a lot of their inspiration from uh, highlighting the idea, a lot of their theology, not just inspiration, from highlighting the idea that ancient Judaism didn't believe in a divine Messiah, and therefore why should we? And that, so they are a firm believer that the Bible must be understood through the lens of the Jewish world perspective, which is um, decidedly uh, fiercely monotheistic. And so, again, that's why they are rejecting Trinity as this um, novel invention of the later Christian, uh, maybe Catholic Church, or the later Christian Church fathers, the Greek fathers, who strayed away from the Hebraic monotheistic perspective of the Bible. So, Biblical Unitarian believes that they are... Um, um, uncovering ancient truth by going back to the monotheistic Jewish understanding of the Old Testament. And so it becomes a big point of their theology to show how that uh, Jesus cannot be the eternal father. He cannot be this divine figure because the ancient rabbis didn't believe it either. But I think uh, uh, something that they fail to realize is that ancient Israel, more often than not, with the exception of the prophets and and, um, and the major players in the Bible, such as Abraham, Moses, David, etc., Israel by and large operated largely in the dark, largely in unbelief, largely in rebellion, largely in gross idolatry for the most part, and largely in rejection of God's prophetic messages that were being given to Israel over and over again to look forward to um, redemption that can only be supplied by God himself. Well, Israel, because they were operating in blindness, even by the time when Jesus hit the scene, they were still largely in the dark, and Jesus had to go to the Twelve to reveal all the truths of incarnation. Because whenever he spoke to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leaders, Instead of receiving the truth of incarnation and the truth of, of the message of salvation that God was trying to give Israel, and I'm closing with this, Israel in their blindness over and over sought to kill him, to try to take his life, to mock him, to discredit him, to show over and over uh, how he, he couldn't possibly be who he was claiming to be, and therefore ultimately, in the scandal of all scandals, they... Um, had him put before, a, put before a, a sham trial, a scam, 
and had him crucified for crimes that he was not guilty of, uh, except in their perspective, which was blasphemy. But the point I'm trying to bring up is it's very interesting, given that scenario, that I'm sure Biblical Unitarian is aware that rabbinic Judaism of the first sale of the first century wholesale rejected Jesus as Messiah. Wholesale rejection, not even giving him the benefit of being the human Jesus who can save us. No, they just reject him altogether. He's out. And they embraced other human messiahs like Bar Kokhba and uh, later on uh, Schneerson and things like that. But here's the point I'm trying to bring up. Ancient Judaism of the first century, so if we go backwards, rabbinic Judaism rejects Jesus, and so does biblical Unitarianism. First century Judaism rejected Jesus as a divine Messiah, and most of them also rejected him as the human Jesus, as the human Messiah. He's just he's just not Messiah at all. Rejected. And yet, Biblical Unitarian embraces Jesus as the human Jesus. And then ancient Israel, you know, the, the before there was Rabbinic Judaism, they also rejected a divine Messiah. By and large, there are some uh, rabbis down through the ages that uh, that we can notice that uh, believe that Messiah was divine, um, but most of them, for the most part, just thought that all the passages were referring to David or um, uh, earthly uh, Judean kings, etc., etc. So, it's interesting that, to me, fascinating yet disappointing at the same time. The Biblical Unitarian makes a, takes a great takes great pains to try to steer modern-day Christians back to ancient, unbelieving Judaism. Yeah, okay, go figure. Can't figure that part out, but it is what it is, right? Let's conclude that with, with, at that point tonight, and we'll pick this up next week, but that'll do it for a Trinitarian response to biblical Unitarianism. Let's close in prayer. Abba, I bless your name. Lord, I'm thankful for your truths and your word, which is truth no matter if I believe it or not. You don't need my opinion to be to um, to establish truth, to, to uh, make truth stand. It stands on its own. The Bible is uh, self... Um, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Self... Uh, uh, not contradictory, obviously. It's self uh um i'm forgetting the word but it 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 proves itself right it affirms its own truth and yet lord even if i don't understand it it still stands to judge me it will judge me one day and that's the scary part lord so help me to continue to press into truth because in my disbelief of certain things, I'm speaking as an unbeliever, in my unbelief, in my disbelief, it's not going to change the fact that one day, the truth is that I'm going to encounter you as Lord, and, I'm, and your word is going to stand in judgment over me. And you are going to ask me, why didn't you believe truth? It was there. It was available for you. Uh, self-confirming. Uh, it, it, it confirmed itself. It, it was um, self-authenticating. That's the word I was looking for earlier. It's self-authenticating. And yet, the unbelievers are going to stand in judgment. Uh, you are going to judge them, and your word is going to judge them. So thank you, Lord, that you are the only true and righteous judge, and that I would do well to uh, embrace truth as you have given it to us. Uh, continue to bless us and to um, raise us up and to give us voices of clarity, of sanity, of salvation, of um, deliverance. 
as we speak your words to the unbelieving world around us who is still lost and in the dark, including national Israel, who is in the dark as far as who their Messiah truly is. Um, Lord, one day you will return and they will look on you whom they pierce and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. We read in the book of Zechariah. Let us um, uh, ever look forward to the um, return of Yeshua to planet Earth. Let us um, look forward to that blessed hope, uh, continuing with expectancy for him to rescue us and to uh, pay and pour out retribution uh, and punishment to those who deserve it. And we'll be careful, Lord, to give you the praise and the glory of Yeshua. Amen. 